Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, listeners, we have such a treat. We have two very special guests. I am so excited that we have... Dr. Shira Goldenberg, who's an assistant professor at Simon Fraser University. Her expertise is in global health, migration health, HIV, and sexual health. And alongside her, we have Stephanie Machado, who is a research associate at the Center for Gender and Sexual Health Equity, where I'm also a member, I think I'm a scientist there too, And Stephanie's expertise is in migration, gender, intersectionality, and the structural determinants of health. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited. I would love, maybe we'll start with Shira. Maybe you can describe, if I'm in an elevator with you and we're only going up one floor, how do you describe what you do? We conduct research with marginalized communities. My personal research involves both immigrant populations as well as sex workers. And we work on understanding people's access to healthcare and what are especially the social factors and the policy factors that basically put people at risk of certain conditions and also make it sometimes difficult to access healthcare. And we work on developing solutions to those problems with community members. I love that. And I love your work. I'm a big fan. Stephanie, if I'm in the elevator with you and I say, what do you do, Stephanie? How do you describe what you do? I try to understand issues that many of us face with regards to accessing healthcare, particularly sexual healthcare, uh, like knowing where to go, how much services cost, what we're eligible for, and the cultural challenges in discussing such issues. And I try to understand how these experiences may be different for immigrants based on race, gender, immigration status, age, and more. That's so amazing. I'm loving this. I'm going to show up. In Vancouver, to visit Stephanie, I was actually supposed to be spending a month with you all in May, but COVID-19 got in the way. But I'm going to show up, Stephanie, to your beautiful city, surrounded by the ocean and the mountains, with my time machine. It's a very beautiful time machine, a space for physical distancing. And I'm going to say, Stephanie, take me back to the time and place where you started becoming interested in these issues. Where would you take me? Maybe two places before here. We're allowed multiple stopovers on the time machine. No problem. Oh, perfect. We'll make it quick. Maybe first, the first place I started realizing about these issues was probably Halifax, Nova Scotia. 
but really quickly we'll stop in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. That's where I was born. And that's sort of where my interests come from. They're informed by my experiences born as an immigrant, uh, living in the UAE, which uh, for those who don't know is a country where over 90% of the population are temporary migrants. Mm. Although I live a very privileged life there. For those who don't know, you can't become a citizen of the UAE unless you're born a national or you marry someone who is, oh, wow. uh, which doesn't happen very often. Um, And so because it's a country built upon the labor of migrants, there is a lot of racism, classism, stigma based on status and gender. But I didn't personally notice it while living there because I just didn't know any other. And then I came to Halifax and moved to Canada in 2013 for undergrad. And I obviously experienced a lot of culture shock. But I think what struck the most was dealing with Western norms and um, expectations around sex and sexuality. I never received a sexual health education or really discussed sex in school or in the household. And I faced judgment like when seeking related care in Halifax and a lot of my international student friends felt the same. And so during my undergrad, I conducted a very small honors thesis, which was really like my first step into research, learning about international students and their experiences accessing sexual health care. Then I came to Vancouver two years ago. Um, From one I met coast Shira. all the way <laughs> yeah. to the other coast. <laughs> I love the water. So I feel like I always have to be by the water. I love the ocean. Yeah. And so when I came to Vancouver two years ago to start my uh, master's in public health, I met Shira. And really through working with her, learned about more complexities around migrant health issues and rights. Uh, She led a field course in the U.S.-Mexico border region, where we spent about 10 days learning about issues faced by migrants with precarious and temporary status, which taught me a lot about how I sort of normalized and internalized a lot of migration and gender-related injustice back home. Mm -hmm. Really now through our work, just learning from amazing immigrant women here in BC and immigrant serving organizations and just learning more about the multi-level stigma faced by immigrants here, which we can talk about later, but really how these intersect to impact health and healthcare access. That's so amazing. I have never been to UAE. So I'm glad we, we got to start there on the journey and then go to Halifax, which is such an interesting, I think, journey and yeah, that's right then to the west coast i'm like wow wow this time machine when i have little like stickers of all the locations that it's been it's very exciting yeah. so thank you stephanie I'm, I'm excited to learn more throughout the podcast so now i'm going to go to california and that in this very robust time machine where would you take me shira because i know your work is so deeply committed to justice and social justice for immigrant and migrant populations, where would we go to, to, to find sort of the spark of interest for your, your work? For myself as well, I think it actually started when I was, you know, more than, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Also in Canada, actually, I was working doing my master's in epidemiology at UBC. And I learned about high rates of STIs up in northeastern BC. And we were talking with public health officers who were really surprised by this because you expect to see that in a big city like Vancouver, but not up in the north. And they had a theory that it might be linked to migration associated with the oil and gas industries and how the community was really just under-resourced to provide appropriate testing and accessible testing and services to that population. So that totally kicked off my interest. And so I felt like a public health detective because really people (laughs) didn't know what was going on. It hadn't been researched. 
I was working really with a really inspirational supervisor who gave me a lot of freedom to really pursue this work by doing my own field work. And so, yeah, I spent a whole bunch of time up north, spent time talking to workers and to youth in the community about how the community of Fort St. John and the surrounding area had been impacted by migration associated with resource extraction. And and there it was, clear and simple. And so that kind of, for me, became the spark that I became really interested in the concept of migration and how it affects public health. But since then, like my perspective has brought in so much. I was fortunate to do my PhD work at the Mexico-US border, really mm-hmm. putting that in a global North and South context in many senses, because it's, set, it's a border characterized by such stark inequity and worked there with more highly marginalized populations, with sex workers and their clients, uh, men who had been deported, understanding about the just really huge gaps in sexual health and really just like human rights, basic human rights mm-hmm. for people who are arriving at the border from many different places for many different reasons. So those are some of the sparks for me that have just really made me see the importance of working in this field. And especially over the years, seeing that I think one thing we need to be mindful of is a lot of work in health and epidemiology sometimes focuses on the prevention of infectious diseases and links that migration. But when you talk to people who are really impacted by this, it reminds you just of the the humanity involved and that we're talking Mm. about people and social experiences and that people's like full needs and rights really need to be considered in terms of how we respond to this in a way that's really sensitive and addressing people's basic needs. I think that's so fascinating that you started in, so it was also a multiple staff over. So we we started in Northern BC And then ended up in this, um, the U.S.-Mexico border. So you sort of started in Canada and then expanded outwards. And Stephanie started outside of Canada and then is starting like moving in there, which really I think is interesting that migration is something that is both regional, as you said, with resource extraction, plus national, plus international. It's so fascinating. This is so great. So I know that I invited you here because I'm particularly interested in your expertise on stigma that is associated with being a migrant or being an immigrant. And I was wondering if, you know, and Sarah, you alluded to this, which is looking at the whole person, because I, I wonder if you ever have to sort of make a case for why, why do we, why does stigma matter for people who are migrating or people who are immigrants? Is it really a big deal? Don't they have a lot of other things to think about? And how, you know, you would answer that question, why should we even be thinking about stigma when we think about about migrants or, or the immigration process? I don't know if maybe we'll start with Stephanie and then we'll go to Shira. Sure. I guess the first thing that comes to mind when you say that for me is just that unless you're part of an indigenous community and the lands in which you live, you're probably an, you are an immigrant if, mm-hmm. if you came yesterday or like your family came like centuries ago. So I think it's relevant to everyone. But I just think that it matters mostly because we all have sort of a human and collective responsibility to reduce harm that's inflicted on others, mm. like quite, quite simply. But I do think these issues are they're just so deeply rooted that they're often normalized, which further contributes to stigma and inequity. So it was only two years ago that I realized the racism and classism that exists back home and that it's not normal. And I just never questioned it because sometimes it's just safer to stay quiet and accept it, but it's so problematic. And just touching on internalized stigma, I just feel like a 
I, I don't hear it talked about often enough and it's very real and needs to be recognized because when our societies and our systems are built to really exclude people who are racialized, it's difficult to not believe that yourself. And it's not always something that we see clearly outside. It's something that exists like very deep inside of us. And I don't know, I guess I'm just hoping that hopefully that uh, encourages people to just be a little kinder towards one another as well, while we work towards addressing like larger structural issues of stigma. Mm -hmm. So it matters because unless you're indigenous, most of us should be recognizing that we're have immigrated, we're settlers in this North American context, and that it's impacting people's rights, but also that it's impacting people maybe in how they, they see themselves. But also I yeah. like what you mentioned, which was we might not even notice it because it's just so much part of the fabric of our society is that we expect some people to be self-identifying maybe as immigrants and other people not. And we don't even really, I think it's something maybe we don't, we don't talk about a lot. Maybe the, the very, ex, very specific type of stigma around migrating or being a migrant in Canada, at least, I think it might get folded into a lot of the other kinds of stigma and discrimination like racism and, and xenophobia, but there might be something very specific to, to the experience of, of migration in itself that is stigmatizing. What about you, Shira? What do you think about when people say, what, what is this big deal about stigma and migration? Well, I guess just building off your last point, for me, a lot of it is policy. And it, to me, it's really institutionalized. Like when you were just asking, what is different about being an immigrant? I mean, we have, you know, communities that are racialized that may not identify as immigrants, or maybe they're, you know, second, third generation plus. And really, I think what it comes down to is also like the system sends signals to people that in turn produces stigma. And that's a lot of where I think stigma comes from. Like we have a points system in our immigration system, which decides who is a desirable immigrant based on how well they speak English, for example. Like to me, that's quite problematic. And that does send a signal to people equally in our healthcare system when people don't have access to interpretation services or feel that services might not kind of be delivered in a way that's aligned with our culture, people can feel really excluded by that. And again, it, may, it can make them feel quite unwelcome, which I think produces that kind of stigma. So, you know, and then COVID is making me think about this a lot. I mean, in a way, it's stigma yeah. is everything. You know, there have been so such an increase in racist actions towards people, especially of Asian descent. You know, so public health, well, I think public health is a really important and obviously beneficial field. There are also a lot of nuances that we need to be so careful about because it's very easy for there to be like a victim blaming tribe or a kind of anti-immigrant component to it if people think diseases are being imported somehow. Mm -hmm. And there can be a real overlap for people who are maybe experiencing racism, but also might have precarious status and feel, you know, especially insecure and especially sort of not deserving of care and really just feel that they need to stay under the radar as a result, which can mean people's needs just aren't being met they don't feel they have safe spaces. Absolutely. I, I was doing a training for uh, Ontario healthcare providers on COVID-19 stigma last week and talking about the xenophobia that is really underpinning a lot of COVID-19 stigma since the beginning. The first yeah. time I was asked to do an interview about it was in February because there was hate crimes targeting people of Asian descent in Toronto. And then I was interviewed about it impacting people in Calgary. 
And then I was interviewed about it like three months, like in May, when Brian Adam made those really racist and xenophobic comments. And I was like, this is actually not going away. Like the way that, you know, Trump, I think last week used the word China virus still. So I feel like this is a really important connection also to make. And I know about, I don't want to ask you all the questions at once. So I'll say, okay, I'll move to the next question, which you both sort of started to talk a little bit about, which is, can you give me an example of a fictional person who is a migrant or an immigrant or however you want to define that and what their experiences of stigma might look like? Maybe we'll start with Stephanie. Can you just, just to, so the listener can understand what, what is that experience looking like? What, what do they go through maybe? Whether it's in healthcare or walking down the street or maybe Shara's example could be about a, a migrant who's also maybe a sex worker. So I'm just wondering if you could explain to the listener from the minute someone wakes up, maybe what their day might look like that might include stigma, including what you mentioned earlier, which is self-stigma, which I think is really important. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot. There's so many layers to this. I can give a few examples and all of which might apply to the to the same person. So just thinking about some of the examples that Shira already brought up, but in regards to language so it can be tied to language, access to healthcare, employment, childcare. So for example, for an immigrant woman with precarious status, it might look like accessing healthcare without fully knowing what's happening because they can't speak English and there's no translation services available. Mm-hmm. They could be excluded from health services just because they're ineligible based on their immigration status or maybe their time spent in Canada because for some services, some social services, you need, uh, you need to be a recent immigrant and that's usually you need to have lived here for five years or less. They may be able to improve their English by attending English classes because they can't afford childcare or they can't work here because they don't have enough Canadian experience but might have so much experience Mm -hmm. in their home country, or they could have a work permit that's tied to their employer and face a lot of injustice in the workplace, but knowing that speaking up would lead to termination or deportation. So when I think about these examples, I just think very much it's, it's a lot about the fact that immigrants are being told, at least in this context, that they're invited here, but they're not Canadian enough to live a full life here because their rights are always being tied to citizenship status. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that immigrants often get jobs that Canadians don't want or that a lot of resources are only in English or that band-aids are often in white skin tones, you know, like none of these are coincidences. And I think they're all examples of stigma at different levels and based on race and status and says really wrongfully that immigrants matter less, which further contributes to both the overt and internalized stigma. Thank you so much. I feel so lucky that we have two people because I get, we get double the, the insight. This is so exciting. Sherry, do you have any examples you can think of, whether or not it's in Canada or at the, right now at the U.S.-Mexico border? Or, you know, you probably have yeah. you more than one example if you want. To. Great. I'll give you a couple. I'll take you on my time machine through a few different places. <laughs> um, well, I guess, first of all, just wanted to say that, yeah, with our research in Vancouver, for example, right now, uh, both Stephanie and I work on the IRIS study, which is a study of immigrant women's experiences with sexual and reproductive health care in the BC context. And I mean, I can't tell you how many interviews we've seen where folks are talking about even just basic everyday structural violence of being on the bus with their child and being told 
to speak English because they're speaking in another oh. language. Yes, in Vancouver. On in the bus. 2019, yeah. 2020. Canada, so, we have work to do. We do. There's this real mythology about Canada being such a multicultural, unwelcoming place, but people are really suffering. These interviews are very hard to listen to. And, and honestly, our participants are just so resilient. It's been amazing to learn from that. Also, just sometimes really judgmental attitudes by healthcare providers. And I will say that they're also wonderful healthcare providers as well who have received particular, you know, more culturally sensitive training and have expertise in immigrant health. But for those who haven't necessarily received all that training and don't maybe specialize with working with the population, you know, even comments that might sound benign can be very stigmatizing and harmful to participants, some of which are really dismissive, like, oh, that person doesn't speak English, so they won't understand. So there are violations of informed consent Mm. before a procedure is done. Things like that, that are really alarming and which our participants definitely do pick up on and and are concerned by. And and again, that stigma is felt um, very much. I remember, I want to keep going in your time machine. I just want to say, I remember hearing this like almost 15 years ago in Ontario, in our work with women living with HIV, immigrant women living with HIV would say that they felt their, their doctors didn't think they were intelligent. They would treat them that they weren't as smart or they, they, didn't under, they couldn't possibly understand their own health or how medications work. So they would, they would just be treated in a way that felt very um, patronizing. Totally. And one manifestation of that is really the tendency to blame things on culture. And I think we really don't, I mean, of course, it's important to attend to cultural nuances in how care is delivered, for example. We need to be thoughtful about what gender provider women might be comfortable with or what languages are needed or what, you know, cultural beliefs might exist that we do need to talk about around things like sexual health or substance use, for example, because there are big changes when somebody comes from another country to Canada, right? And it's important to recognize that. But at the same time, so much of the field sometimes has sort of used culture as a bit of a catch-all. It's like, oh, well, because of the culture, they don't understand. Because of the culture, it's like an excuse to this woman exactly about her autonomy because her husband is for sure going to interfere. You know, and it's like everybody deserves the same opportunity, and we can't blame everything on cultural differences. So we kind of have really shifted away from that in our work. Uh, in terms of your questions, Carmen, around just, yeah, other examples like sex workers, for example, both at the Mexico-U.S. border and definitely in Vancouver, there's a double stigma for sure around, and I mean, there's other forms of precarious work that are also stigmatized, but I would argue sex work is, is pretty high up on the list. So if you're a sex worker of Canadian origin, you're already going to face a lot of stigma, especially also for Indigenous women or highly racialized. That's very important to recognize. But for immigrant sex workers, for example, with my work in Central America or even in Vancouver, also being a foreigner as another layer of stigma. People are, first of all, afraid of immigration consequences if they're doing work that's criminalized and have negative interactions with police, but also are afraid to just even go talk to their healthcare provider about sexual health needs or to let their family know about the work that they're doing. So it tends to be very covert and we see like much more stigmatized for our immigrant participants. So that's definitely just a huge factor as well. That's really been a challenge and a lot of services don't support that community. So we have a lot of work to do still. And so when you talk about immigrant, say for example, an immigrant sex worker in Vancouver, what might be a daily experience where they have to face stigma or navigate or avoid stigma? 
Yeah. I would say the top one is racial profiling of their workplaces, for example. So in Vancouver, there are lots of like massage parlors and other indoor spaces where migrant sex workers work primarily, for example, women from China. And, you know, it's maybe get up in the morning, tell your family you're going to a different job, do this work completely like under the radar, hope that police or immigration don't bust into your workplace and start asking you for ID and to search your locker and do a lot of other things, you know, maybe take away your condoms or threaten the owner of the establishment that, you know, they're going to be cracked down on as a result of having condoms on site, things like that. And so a lot of participants do tell us that they feel their their workplaces are especially racially profiled in this regard, that it's assumed they're victims of human trafficking because, for example, they're from an Asian country and so they must have been brought here against their will. So stuff like that we hear all the time. And it's so harmful because then people don't feel safe working in those places and they maintain to work in an isolated way where they don't have, you know, ability to protect themselves from violence, for example. Well, those are really powerful examples. And (laughs) I feel a little bit like sad right now hearing all of these. (laughs) No, so so my, my third final stigma question, which is a big question I know, is what can... I do about it? What can the listeners do about it? A lot of times I know academics focus on these big social policy changes, which I also want to hear about. I also wonder if there's other things that a person walking their dog can, can think about doing, a um, person working in a coffee shop. Like how, how can we be part of a solution to this stigma that many different people who have an immigration experience and are experiencing stigma? Maybe we'll start with Stephanie. What, what are some things we can do? Well, I think you're already doing a great job, Carmen, by having this podcast, because I think we do oh. need to have more public conversations about this. Like people don't, people don't know often what's happening in their own city that they live in. And that's for a reason. It's because these things are often hidden unless you're the one experiencing it. But I think it's important to have these conversations to really understand like the depth uh, of stigma that people experience. I also think it's important to talk more and learn from immigrant strengths and resiliency, like Shira mentioned, like beyond their their contribution Mm -hmm. to the economy. But, you know, it's important to ask about people's lives before they migrated here I mean, regardless of their experiences, they deserve to thrive in their new city and not just survive. But it's important to humanize everyone, really. Countries, you know, they love to welcome immigrants, but that experience often changes uh, when they arrive. So that we need expectations to start meeting reality. I also think it's important to hold each other accountable. Like, uh, I think we're learning a lot from the anti-racism movement about how no no act is too small to make a difference. So it's just mm. the simple thing of calling out discriminatory and stigmatizing behavior, especially non-BIPOC and when, you know, when it's safe to do so. Many people, many times people don't have the energy to fight for themselves or say something back and they're really just hoping someone else will. So I think that's really important. But yeah, in addition to advocating for secure status for everyone um, Mm -hmm. to protect people, I think it's about these daily things that we can do as well, just recognizing this shared humanity that we have and the collective responsibility that we have to keep each other safe. I love that. And I really appreciate that you brought up Two things. One of them has been brought up in another podcast by Yasmin Prasad, who was talking about 
transgender stigma. And she said, it was really powerful. She's like, people, when I asked her what people can do about it, she also said, see the whole person and don't just see our stigma. We're not just these stigmatized, sad people walking around that we have lives and friends and families and joy and talents and skills, like a whole life that's just beyond this this experience, maybe of stigma or of the migration. Although, of course, that's really central. There's all these other things that people might love karaoke. Like we have no idea what people like love to do. They might ride motorcycles. Exactly. Even knows. And then I also like that you you brought up something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is how we stand up and show up for each other when things are happening. I did a training. It's free. It's called Hollaback. And they have one actually against um, migration, racism and migration stigma. But it's, I'll put the link for the listeners. Um, but it's also just how to assess when is a safe moment and when you can and who is the energy. Because it has to be more than just people experiencing the stigma standing up against it. You know, as you said, people might not feel safe. They might be exhausted. So it needs to be our collective humanity that is being part of the solution and, and challenging it when we see it. So thank you. Those are great. I feel inspired. I feel hopeful already. (laughs) I feel much more hopeful now. Thanks, Stephanie. (laughs) How about you, Shira? And I know that there are structural issues that I know you want to talk about. So feel free. (laughs) Yeah, Stephanie did an amazing job already talking about a lot of the individual things I think we can do. Thank you for that, Stephanie. I agree with everything that's been said. I think we have so much to learn from the anti-racism movement and also the Black Lives Matter movement in particular, the calls right now around defunding the police. Because I think, you know, as you said, Carmen, like there are these important social and policy things that need to happen and they can take a long time. But in the meantime, a lot of the issues that I've talked about today, some of which like are inflicted by law enforcement and not because of individual bad people, but just because of the way the system is set up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think by reducing interactions with police and by providing more support for community-based organizations to really support people and meet them where they're at. That's been a huge source of strength uh, we hear from the community. And I think the research really backs that up. And so I think some of those efforts are actually really pertinent to this as well in terms of moving away from policing of immigrant communities more towards community support. Um, And individual people can call for this kind of action by supporting these local movements in your city and also at a national level. As Stephanie mentioned, there's also like migrant justice work happening in particular, like calls for immigration status for all, which would address a lot of the systemic factors that we talked Mm. about here today. The Migrant Rights Network in particular is a great resource where there's lots of ongoing campaigns around different migrant justice topics. And right now there still is an active campaign around immigration status for all. There have also been recent campaigns around healthcare access and addressing precarity during COVID for immigrants. So those are things that individual people can get involved in terms of joining digital rallies, writing letters, calls for actions to federal policymakers, to the prime minister's office, to your, you know, city councillors. So there's a lot that can be done, you know, especially at a municipal level, access without fear policies are really important. So making sure that status checking, checking people's immigration status Sometimes even the simple act of just asking for ID or asking people about their health care coverage can be perceived as a form of status checking for people where they're worried it could lead to revealing their that they don't have maybe immigration status right now and 
can just be really harmful for people and make them feel those aren't safe spaces. And so this has been really patchwork across the country and it's been a little bit more well formulated in some U.S. cities. So I think there's still a lot of work that can be done in Canadian cities and by Canadian citizens and residents in terms of really advocating for this um, within your community and seeing what's happening, not only in healthcare, but it even exists in schools. In some parts of the country, even students can't register for school, which is a really crazy thing to think about in the Canadian context, but it is happening. So there's a lot more work that still needs to be done on that front. I love that. And I really appreciate that you have given us some ideas about how we can be involved in larger social and structural changes, supporting the Black Lives Matter movements, you said migrant justice movements, and where we want status for all people, defunding the police. So these are some active things happening right now in Canada and the world about changing how our society does not value and give everybody access to dignity and and worth. And especially when people have this precarious immigration status or are judged for being immigrants, either way, the migration experience is is often embedded within, you know, the larger racism structures in society. So I feel very empowered now. Thank you both. (laughs) This is great. Um, So the last part of the podcast is my favorite part. It is the wild card questions. <laughs> so this is where the listeners get to know the real you, or at least a little bit more about the real you. So Stephanie, what are you binging on Netflix right now? Okay, there's actually one specific show that I'm binging on Netflix right now, and it's The Office. Um, watch that. I had I had never watched it before, and all of my friends were like, how can you have not watched The Office before? Um, the humor, it's a little like cringy, like it is from a while ago. So right now it's like, oh, I can't believe you were saying that. But it is funny. Uh, so that's what I'm watching right now. As long as I, I'm all about funny or like light. It has to have a happy ending. I don't want to watch anything. Not at the ending yet. <laughs> sad or like depressing. I'm like, I need to be watching things. You know, so how about you, Shira? I, Shira, I know you have <laughs> lots of small kids. I don't know if that influences your Netflix watching patterns. <laughs> oh, it does. It's more necessary than ever. Yeah, when those kids go to bed, my partner and I definitely need to unwind. Yeah, so The Wire is probably not going to be the uplifting thing you're looking for. This is like an old show yes. around just like the war on drugs in Baltimore, and it's like yes. so intense. I'm like gripping the edge of my seat and horrified and everything all at once but we're just a little hooked um see we didn't make it through the first season we watched like the first we watched one season and we're like our hearts are breaking and then i've been in baltimore a couple of times like for a few months so i'm like oh but i mean some people really like watching watching things that are so powerful and and actually reflecting reality so that's good Yeah, but we're also, anyways, we also, when I like need a little bit more just kind of current politics or something a little bit funnier, definitely uh, Trevor Noah is up there for me, for sure. I love that guy. I love him. I was literally before I I was joining this podcast, I follow him on Instagram and I was just, it it cheers me up, just his perspective. He's just (laughs) amazing. I need to get his book as well that he wrote. Okay, second wild card question. Stephanie. You could go 
anywhere in the world for dinner with anybody you want, living or dead, who do you take and where do you go? There's so many people, so many people that come to mind. You can bring a few um, people. I'm not limiting it to one person. That's fine. Okay. Well, they all revolve around my family. <laughs> Put it to that. But I think if I had to go somewhere, I'd go back to Abu Dhabi just because my parents are there. If I could, I'd pick up my brother from the States and on the way. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard because we don't know when we'll see each other next. Um, oh, so so I think that's, yeah, that's the first place I'd go and probably just my mom's cooking to be honest that's amazing so you'd go get your mom mom's cooking and would you would you be eating inside outside what kind of venue is this probably inside like I just want to sit on my couch and my mom makes really good like seafood curry that's like very homey that's like all I want right now okay when you go there when you're when the borders open up you need to take a selfie so I can be like, yes, this is awesome. Um, how about how about you, Shira? Where would you go? I think I would go back to this. Uh, this is I don't know. I would probably go back to Guatemala, um, to the southern border between Mexico and Guatemala, where I had the privilege of working many years ago with some really amazing community members from an organization called Educavida, which is like an HIV prevention organization that worked with. Um, a lot of our work with migrant sex workers happened at that border. And this is such a group of powerful women who were just honestly making the world a better place despite such limited resources and just had such big hearts. And we had the best time there always, yeah, just with like the local food, homemade tamales, learning and meeting just everybody's families. Like for me, it was the epitome of why global health work will always have a special place in my heart is like, you know, just every time we got to spend time there, really getting to know everyone in the community and feeling so welcomed. And I just love everything about the Latin American culture. So um, I really miss that team. And after having small children and then COVID, it's been so hard for me to get back there. And it's just something I've, I've always thought about and tried to stay in touch with folks, but would love to just go back and get to do that again. I, I was in Guatemala a long time ago and it was, I took the bus from actually from Canada through Oh, wow. Uh, Ciudad through all the way down to, to Honduras, just over time. I remember how beautiful Guatemala is. I remember the markets, the fabric, the food. Where, where in Guatemala was it? Well, we worked right at the border. My work doesn't tend to take me to the most picturesque You're really places. I'm, I'm so interested that you work at the border. In, I know, mostly worked in like like very transient places just right at the border, you know, oh, but um, nice. we nice. spent a lot of time in yeah, the town of Tecunuman, which is very close to the border and that's where they were based. But further away, just a couple hours is Quetzaltenango, which is known locally as Shela. Yes, and that's it was like, there. It's so magical yeah, there. Yeah, wow. it's a real, you know, you really feel like the indigenous culture and history there so strongly. It's up in the mountains. It's so beautiful. Like the food, the coffee, the culture, all the, just the women's clothing is so beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, and just, I love the bright colors and people were just, you know, so welcoming and kind. So um, I have fabric in my office from there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's like amazing. That's amazing. Okay. The last question I have, because I would also love to, I'd love to go to, you know, join you both for your dinners. Let me know. (laughs) Um, The last question is, what is a uh, moving, powerful, meaningful piece of advice that you've ever gotten that you'd like to share with the listeners. Stephanie? 
feel like there's so many, but at the same time, I'm like, are there? <laughs> I saw something recently. So it wasn't uh, a piece of advice that I got directly, but I just saw this phrase online that really spoke to me. But it said, so it builds off of the current phrase of, I always, I always like butcher uh, sayings, but something about when you drop the ball on something, like when you make a mistake or something doesn't go as planned. And I think it said something like, when you drop the ball on something, just remember that glass balls shatter, but rubber balls bounce back up. And it just made me like, like as someone, and I think Shira can attest to this, like I'm pretty hard on myself and like I can be a perfectionist at times. So I think just thinking critically about you know, what good can come out of a situation or how much something matters versus another thing, it kind of keeps me grounded and helps me move forward. That's amazing. I'm also like, okay, so I have to make sure I only have rubber balls. <laughs> I don't want any yeah, glass exactly. balls around here. I need strong <laughs> balls. That's great. I've never heard that. How about that. you, Shira? Is there some, some saying or phrase or you know, advice that you'd like to share? Definitely. Well, as you heard earlier, Carmen, like, you know, my work can be pretty intense sometimes. And I think especially working with students, like it can feel really overwhelming to know like what to do when there's so much injustice in the world and it can make you feel really overwhelmed and sad. And so I think really just two pieces, one of which is always remembering that like people are so resilient and have so much strength mm. and there are so many beautiful things in the world as well that we can, I think, sort of focus our attention on while not forgetting the challenges in terms of mm. like where we can move forward and really leveraging that. So just to not have like an only deficits based approach on focusing on like all these things are wrong, but also what's right and how can we support that. And I think that's really what community members want to see as well as we're whole people, you know, and we have a lot of value that we're bringing to the table. And so how can we work, you know, kind of with that strength to hold each other up. The second part is honestly just focusing on what I call like our locus of control. It's like there are so many factors that are influencing the problems we see in our research and in our, you know, the, the challenges community members are facing around migration and stigma. And so for like an individual person that wants to make a change, or for an individual student that's working on a project, like figure out where is your locus of control? Like what are the things that I can affect? And what are the things that I can affect right now? And trying to focus first on the things you can affect. And then you can get broader over time. But trying to do everything at once can be really overwhelming. So that's, that's amazing. I really appreciate that advice, too. I remember someone said to me, you can have everything you want, just not at the same time. So just sort of like figure out what is possible and, and try to match. You know, it's really interesting. Like I was talking to my partner last night about like all the advice that I'm personally getting from all the podcast guests and how a lot of people... It's this really interesting balance between striving for more and also understanding where you're at. So it's like, it's really in what you can influence and what you can't do. So it's very, I always like leave these feeling like, I'm going to write this down and put it on my sticky notes <laughs> on my wall. So thank you both so much. This has been so fun. You're so brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Carmen. It's <laughs> been wonderful to learn with you. I'm excited to share this with the world and everybody to learn more and find out more about you. Follow you both on Twitter, read your work. <laughs> so. Thanks Thank so much. much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. 
Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. You know Mm-hmm.